You're listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The brain is the deadliest organ. What's the most dangerous animal in the known universe? Of course, the answer is the human. No other animal even comes close. When such discussions arise, there's nearly always talk about making a one-on-one matchup between a human and another animal, fair, by imposing constraints on the human. Constraints like, the human isn't allowed to use a weapon, so no knives, spears, or elephant guns. Or, the human must fight the other animal in its natural habitat, like swimming with a killer whale. But such constraints miss the point. One of the things that makes humans so dangerous is their ability to use their brains and technology, which is the fruit of their brains, to adapt to stressors under a wide variety of conditions. By imposing constraints, you remove human adaptability and technology, turning the human into so much warm meat for the other animal. So when you impose artificial constraints, you make my argument for me. Yes. The human is not very dangerous without his technology. It is exactly his brain and his technology that make him so dangerous. By the way, only another human would think of or be able to impose constraints in the first place. It's unlikely that a great white shark would show up at your front door, challenge you to a fight, and then stipulate that the fight take place only in the water. And it's even more unlikely that the shark especially while on land at your front door, could then force you to comply. No, it would take a human to think of and to impose those constraints. And it would probably also be the type of human that spends time speculating about whether Rocky could beat Rambo. As I said, the human is the deadliest animal. Which part of the human makes it so formidable? Of course, the answer is the organ that's also the most frequent subject of this podcast, the quirky, fallible, and very dangerous human brain. While the natural weapons of your body, like your fists, shins, elbows, and knees, can be quite formidable, without the brain to run things, they are only parts to memorize for an anatomy test. As I said earlier, Man's technology is part of what makes him so dangerous. Well, the other dominant topic of this podcast, the field of the martial arts, is a form of technology. The brain is even more dangerous if it's been trained to operate the body to efficiently survive and deal with violence. A martial brain, if you will. Of course, a certain percentage of your martial arts training, like conditioning, for example, is done more for your body than for your brain. And in the beginning stages, you're mostly learning to execute techniques, a challenge for your brain at first, but no challenge at all once muscle memory begins to take hold. 
At this early intermediate level where you've developed a number of techniques to a reflexive level, you've already become a force to be reckoned with in a typical self-defense setting. But if you wish to move up to the next level, that is, the level where you can hope to prevail against another trained martial artist, you will need to add a new set of mental skills. You see, your arms and legs can move you around, collide with objects, push them away, or hold them tightly. But your brain can play games. And that skill, that ability to grasp the concept of a game, and to apply it in the real world is part of what makes the human brain so dangerous. Let's see your well-conditioned tibia checkmate that mouth breather in chess class using the Budapest Gambit. Can your well-conditioned core make the right decision about whether to hand off the ball or pass it downfield? No, to take your martial arts skills to the next level, I submit that you need to apply the game-playing brain. Learning to fight is not simply a question of learning to punch, kick, take down, stab, slice, or whatever technique of mayhem you may have in mind. If that were the case, the martial arts would not have kept my attention for the better part of the last five decades. But to do those things against someone who is also trying to do them to you at the same time, ah, that's where the fun is. And more importantly, that's where the deadly effectiveness of the human brain shines. It's important for a martial artist to learn techniques and drills in a self-defense context. In other words, without imposing any rules on the fight. But to progress from there to a higher level, it's equally important to spend training time treating one's martial art as a bit of a sport. In other words, to temporarily impose some unrealistic rules on purpose in order to develop a way to game a certain subset of the techniques against an opponent who is gaming them against you at the same time, without doing more damage to your bodies than is an acceptable price to pay for the result. These rules are not intended to make it fair, but only to decrease injury. Now, I know that some of you may take offense at the point I'm trying to make today. You may feel that to compare fighting to a game infantilizes it, makes it childish, these feelings might induce you to proclaim that fighting is not a game. I assert, however, that it is. You may say that there are no rules in real fighting, but there are. They are the laws of physics, physiology, and game theory, and the stakes, of course, are the very highest. I frequently refer to the concept of building your game in episodes of this podcast, like number 51, which is entitled, Building Your Grappling Game. A simple abstract way of looking at game building in the martial arts is to think in terms of the following two-step process. First, develop tactical skill and technical knowledge aimed at preventing the skilled opponent from doing what he needs to do in order to impose his will on you. And second, develop tactical skill and technical knowledge aimed at doing what you need to do in order to impose your will on your opponent, even though he is bringing all his skill and knowledge to the game to prevent it. Well, of course, the devil is, as always, in the details. One way to handle some of the details and simplify the game-building concept is to break the larger game down into smaller ones and train them individually. 
A great way to do this starts by identifying a technique that you're especially good at executing, what the Japanese call your tukuiwaza. For example, when grappling on the ground with the opponent in your guard, you feel that you execute the arm lock called the kimura better than other elements of your offense there. Rather than simply trying like hell to grab his arm and tear it off, no matter what he's doing at the time, first you should learn what mistakes the opponent might make that would give you a better chance at success at catching the kimura. Like, for example, placing his palm on the mat at your side. Now, learn ways to induce him to do that. Like almost sweeping him onto his back. Especially with a particular sweep that most grapplers call the hip bump sweep but which my teacher, Marcelo Montiero, calls the Mountaineer Sweep. Now learn what methods the opponent might use to survive when you successfully catch the figure four grip for the arm lock, but have yet to force submission with it. He might use the hand of the trapped arm to grip some part of his body or clothing, which prevents you from moving his arm into position where he might tap. In that case, you can learn techniques to break his grip, he might throw both arms around your body in a bear hug, which actually works pretty well to prevent your success, but commits both his arms, leaving his neck open to choking attacks like the guillotine, and leaving him vulnerable to a low variation of the hip bump sweep, which would finish with you in the mounted position. That's a huge positional upgrade, and if you're smart, you will have developed one or more games within the game in that position as well. This system of mini-games within the larger game is a great way to organize a significant fraction of your training. There are other concepts larger than the mini-game that can shape your entire game. In Jiu-Jitsu, the game is based on the hierarchical value of the various positions. In fencing, it's the tactical wheel, which was the subject of episodes 141 and 142 of this podcast. In the striking arts, it's my humble opinion that the majority of the game is based on footwork. Other elements of game building can be useful. They include indirect attacks, in other words, faking left before going right, and the rock-paper-scissors principle, which is choosing the technique that best interacts with the technique your opponent chooses, and what I call the principle of forking. That's forking. Get your mind out of the gutter. I borrowed the term from chess. When you fork your opponent in chess, you put him in a situation in which your piece can capture either of two or more of his pieces, but he can't capture any of yours. He's trapped on the tines of your fork, sure to lose one of his pieces. He gets to choose which one. In the martial arts, this means developing the ability to guide events so that you fork the opponent with double attacks. In a double attack, you set up a situation in which, to defend one of your attacks, your opponent must open himself up to another one. Of course, I've only touched on a few of the concepts that can maximize the use of the deadliest organ. Nothing that I've discussed today had much to do with technique. Developing techniques is important, but... Taking chess as a metaphor, developing techniques is analogous to the act of making the pieces. You can't play without them, but how you move them is of more importance than how you made them. 
Remember that only your brain can perform the mental gymnastics necessary to turn any related collection of martial arts moves into a shonuf for real game. A great martial artist is that most dangerous of hybrids. A big enough nerd to understand the value of being prepared and educated for any self-respecting gamer's challenge, crossed with a hopeless gym rat. To finish today, I want to appeal to you coaches and teachers out there. Don't make the mistake of giving most of your attention to the students who are, quote, more athletic, unquote. I assert that someone who is highly intelligent can be nursed along to become a fantastic martial artist on the basis of their intelligence rather than on their strength, agility, or flexibility. It can be tedious at first to painstakingly change a nerd into an athlete, but he or she may well turn into a brilliant tactician once they toughen up. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain Podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com.